Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. Um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 13 this morning. Acts chapter 13, verses 14 through 43. And it sounds like a pretty big bite of Scripture, and that's because it is, but it's a complete sermon that the Apostle Paul preached, and so, so we're going to cover it. And... Uh, So Acts chapter 13, verses 14 through 43. Starting at verse 14, it says, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day... They went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. While they had carried out all that was written concerning him, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your Gospel. We thank You for Your Son. We ask that You be with us this morning, that You open this Word up to us, that You oh, show us wonderful things. That Lord, we just ask that, that we hear Your voice speaking through Your Word this morning, not my voice. Lord, we want to hear Your voice. We want to understand and we want to see Christ. We just pray that you open these things up to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So the title of this sermon is History Culminates in Christ because that's really what, what the Apostle Paul does. He's going to preach a sermon, but the sermon that he preaches is, uh, is really a, histo- it's a history of the nation of Israel. I'm going to begin by reading you a a passage from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's Genesis 12, 1-3, and that's God's promise to Abram. You know, He changed His name to Abraham, but that's God's promise to Abraham when He called him out to Himself. He said, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bring a nation from you. I'm going to make you a blessing. And I'm going to bless you and in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Last week, we saw Barnabas and Saul sent out from the church at Antioch in Syria. So we're looking at two different Antiochs. We're looking at one last week and we're looking at a different one this week. The Antioch that they were sent out from is in Syria. Just straight north of... uh, um, Palestine, straight north of Canaan. And um, 
the church there in Antioch was the first uniquely Christian church that was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And they, they had this wonderful plurality of elders. And Paul and Barnabas were set apart from the elders of the church by the Holy Spirit. And they were commissioned by the church to take the gospel to the nations, to go on this first missionary journey. They began on the island of Cyprus, which was where Barnabas was from. They began preaching in the synagogues of the Jews. And Luke doesn't record for us how many converts they had. If any, he doesn't record it. But after they preached in the synagogues of the Jews and they made their way across the island of Cyprus, um, they were summoned before the Roman proconsul or the governor that was over the island of Cyprus. And they were, they were called to come speak the Word of God to him. Come, come speak your message to me. I want to hear it. And when they did, they were opposed by this Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which was very ironic because Bar means son of. So his name literally means son of Yahweh is salvation, but he's opposing the gospel. He's opposed to them. But when Saul or Paul rebuked the false prophet, um, the Holy Spirit struck the false prophet with blindness. And then the Roman proconsul, the governor, his name was Sergius Paulus, he believed. But he didn't believe because the guy was struck with blindness. He believed because he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now this is a turning point. It's a transactional point, a transition point in the redemptive history that Luke is recording for us in the book of Acts. From this point forward, Saul is going to be referred to by his Roman name, Paul. Up to now, we've been calling him Saul or Saul of Tarsus. But from this point forward, he's going to be referred to as Paul. And he's going to take on the leadership role both in directing the mission and in the preaching of the gospel. And what this signals is the further outward movement of the witness of Christ that Jesus prophesied back in Acts 8 or 1.8. When he told him, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And that's the way it has gone. We saw the explosion of the gospel in Jerusalem beginning with Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Then we saw the expansion into Judea and Samaria through the scattering of the Hellenistic believers after the stoning of Stephen. Through the preaching of Philip, we saw the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and then multitudes of Samaritans and Hellenistic Jews. Through the preaching of Peter, we saw the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius and all of his friends and family, Gentiles. And this is Judea and Samaria as the gospel goes outward. And all of that symbolically culminated in the preaching of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene there in Syria and Antioch. And it resulted in the conversion of a large mixed group of Jews and Gentiles and the formation of the first unique multicultural Christian church. So that covers all of Judea and Samaria. And then this church sends out Paul and Barnabas 
on this first missionary journey. And this is the beginning of the third part of Jesus' prophecy, this thesis statement for the book of Acts, and it is to the remotest part of the earth. Let's start in verse 14. It says, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, if you look at the front of the bulletin, you got a neat little map that my bride found that shows you exactly where they were at. Um, they landed at Perga when they came up from Cyprus. And Perga is right there at the bottom of Turkey. And then they traveled 100 miles or so from Perga up into the central area of Turkey to Pisidian Antioch. Um, and, you know, when they came to Perga, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Um, Luke doesn't tell us how long they were in Perga. He doesn't tell us if they preached the gospel there, if they went to the synagogue. Um, they may not have. They may have intended to stop there and preach on their way back to Antioch um, at the end of their missionary journey, which they did. It's actually recorded in Acts 14.25 that when they came back through, they spoke the Word of God there. So they could have just went right on through and not stopped the first time. Or they may have, and we just don't know. Um, Because Luke doesn't record it. And the reason for this is, as I pointed out several times, Luke's account here in Acts is not meant to be an exhaustive history of every detail of everything that happened. He's just pulling out significant events to give us the big picture, the big view of what is going on as the gospel moves out and Christ builds His church and expands His kingdom. So, Paul and Barnabas left Pergam, and they traveled to Pisidian Antioch. And then on the Sabbath day, they go into the synagogue and sit down. Now, this, this is the modus operandi. This is the method of operation for all of Paul's mission activity, except for Athens. There's always an exception. So, anytime, anytime you say... As soon as you say this is always the way it's done, then somebody will say, well, no, over here they did it this way. There's always an exception. But except for Athens, typically what Paul would do when he came into a town, if it had a sizable Jewish population big enough to have a synagogue, he would go to the synagogue first. Um, And there's a couple of reasons for that. First, he genuinely wanted Jews to hear the gospel and come to Christ. Paul desired that with all of his heart. He wanted his countrymen, his, his um, people who, who, who he associated with, who he identified with, his ethnic group, he wanted them to be converted. He wanted them to come to know the Lord. But second, he also knew that on a Sabbath in the synagogue, there would be a sizable crowd of both ethnic Jews and believing Gentiles. There would be a sizable crowd there who knew enough of the law and the prophets to be theologically prepared to hear the gospel. He knew this is the perfect place to go preach. They know the scriptures. 
They read them every Sabbath. Most of these people, at least they believe in God. They believe, they're followers of the Jewish religion. They believe in the true God. They just don't understand what it's about. And so it's the perfect place to go preach Christ. So verse 15 says, After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Well, a a typical first century synagogue service would have included a recitation of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And you will worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your might. Um, that would have been that would have been foremost. And then there would have been other readings from the law. There would have been blessings that were pronounced by the priest. And then there would have been a reading from one of the prophets. And then they would have a sermon or an exhortation from any qualified Jew. They were open meetings. If you were a Jew and you were qualified, if you were an adult male with, with enough education to get up and speak, you could get up and speak. And so, uh, and, and also every synagogue had one or two or more officials who maintained the synagogue and they maintained order during the services. And that's what we see here. There were synagogue officials. There were more than one. Which means it was a fairly large synagogue. And there's a couple of possibilities as to why Paul and Barnabas were asked to address the synagogue, seeing as how they were strangers. It's possible that they'd already had a conversation with one or more of the synagogue officials and uh, informed them that they had a message for the people. It's also possible that Paul's clothes identified him as a Pharisee and made the officials curious to hear what he had to say. Could have been either way. Luke doesn't tell us. But for whatever reason, at the, after the readings, they send somebody over to Paul and Barnabas and say, hey, if you guys got anything you want to say, now's the time. Verse 16 says, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. One commentator that I read said that uh, he pointed out that when Jesus went into the synagogue at Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, he stood up to read. He read from the prophet Isaiah and then he sat down to teach. When Paul went into the synagogue at Antioch, he sat down during the reading of the Law and the Prophets and then he stood up to preach. Is there any significance to this? I think so. I believe the significance is this. The rabbis would sit down to exposit, interpret the Scriptures, and they did that as a symbol of authority. They have the authority. They would sit down. Top of the, um, the, the visual imagery here is that that rabbi is sitting over the Scriptures. And they're sitting over the congregation. They're sitting there telling you this is the Word and this is what it means. They're interpreting the Scriptures to you. Well... 
Jesus was the fulfillment of that authority. He's truly the one who could and can set over the Scriptures. He's the author. He interprets the Scriptures for us. On the mountain of transfiguration, Peter saw a transfigured Jesus conversing with Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And Jesus is there conversing with them. And uh, Peter sees this and he mistakenly concludes that they're equal. But the Father spoke from heaven and corrected his mistake. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus is both the fulfillment of and the interpretation of the Law and the Prophets. And that's Paul's understanding. By standing up to preach, Paul is saying, this is not my interpretation of the Scriptures. And I'm not speaking to you today on my authority. I'm here to proclaim to you the one who has both interpreted and fulfilled the Scriptures for us already, and I'm speaking to you on His authority. I think that's why Paul stood. So Paul gets their attention, and he does it with both gestures and with words. And immediately, he lets them know that pedigree and ethnicity don't matter. It says, men of Israel, which is Jews, and you who fear God, you Gentile converts, regardless of your bloodline, I have a message for both of you. My message is for everybody. It's for everybody here. And the message that Paul's going to deliver, it parallels Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. It also parallels in structure, Matthew's Gospel account and the book of Hebrews. It's very likely that this is, this is the structure of the apostolic gospel, what we're fixing to look at. This is the structure of what all of the apostles were preaching. This is what we're going to look at today in this message. Verse 17 <laughs> Says the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he led them out from it. So he begins with God. The God of Israel is the true and living God. They don't have any room to boast because they didn't choose him. You know, we, we say. We believe that God chose His people and that He chooses His people. His people have no room to boast because they didn't have anything to do with it. He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and He chose them for a purpose, the fathers. That's who He's talking about. He chose them for His purpose. God doesn't exist for His... See, they're backwards at this point in history. They think that God exists for them. They are the chosen people. They are the nation. God exists for us. The Messiah is coming for our benefit. And ours alone. But that's backwards. God doesn't exist for Israel. They exist for Him. They exist to fulfill His purpose. 
He multiplied this people during their stay in Egypt. And then when He multiplies them with a mighty display of His power, He led them out of Egypt. Verse 18 says, For a period of about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. God provided for them in the wilderness. For a generation. He let that generation that had had uh, come out of Egypt, that generation that was steeped in the idolatry and the culture of Egypt, basically died off in the wilderness because of their rebellion and their disobedience. But He tolerated them and He put up with them and He cared for them and He provided for them as He carried them through the wilderness. And then verse 19 says, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. So God judged and destroyed the nations of Canaan. He did it for their own wickedness. They were judged righteously. They were judged for what they did, their own wickedness and idolatry. And so when God judged them and when He gave them what they were due, he didn't, there was no unfairness and there was no unrighteousness in this. When God gave them what they were due and He destroyed them, then He transferred the land that had been theirs to the descendants of Jacob, Israel, the children of Israel. This was done in fulfillment of the promise concerning the land made to Abraham back there in Genesis 12, 1-3. That was part of that promise, if you remember. I'm going to give them this land. I'm going to give your descendants this land. And it, that same promise was repeated to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verses 2-5. through five. If you want to write it down, I'm not going to go read it. And it was reaffirmed to Jacob in Genesis 28, verses 10-15. So God made the promise to Abraham that I read to you. He made the same promise to his son Isaac, and then he reaffirmed the same promise to his grandson Jacob, the fathers. And it's all included, the elements of giving them this land, but also that in them, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And Paul says this took about 450 years. Now, some critics point out that it didn't take 450 years to get from Exodus until Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. I'm going to read that to you because this is what it says in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. It says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. So if you hear any preacher say that the land promises to Israel haven't been fulfilled, they've got to just rip that page right out of their Bible because it says in verse 43, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that He had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. 
all came to pass. So, 450 years hadn't passed yet. So what's how does Paul date this? Why is there that discrepancy? Well, it wasn't 450 years from the Exodus to then, but it was 450 years from the Exodus until David conquered Jerusalem and drove out all of the Jebusites that lived there. You remember whenever they were conquering and they were driving out the people under Joshua, they didn't they didn't drive everybody out. They God fulfilled all of his promises, but they didn't do what all they were supposed to do. And this kind of went on and it for 400 years during the book of Judges, they dealt with this because they didn't obey God. So this was part of their disobedience. And 450 years from the Exodus, David conquers Jerusalem and he drives out the Jebusites and that's, that's how Paul is dating this. And that was in 1003 B.C. Let's look at verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Well, I just told you that took about 400 years. God with God ruling them through through His law, 400 years. Now imagine that this is longer than the United States has been a country. So our concept of the rule of law, it's not something that our founding fathers came up with. That's not something that Americans generated. That's what the nation of Israel lived under. They had a document. They had the law of Moses, which was like our Constitution. God ruled them through His law for 400 years. They actually, there was actually a nation in the world in antiquity that lived under the rule of law for 400 years. They were governed by God through His law. And God would appoint judges to both settle disputes, administer justice, um, and deliver them whenever they would get in trouble for their disobedience. They would disobey, they would get in trouble, and then God would deliver them. The last judge was Samuel the prophet. And in verse 21 it says, Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now I'm not going to go too deep into Saul, but Saul was a man's man. He was, by all worldly accounts, this is the guy that should be king. He looked the part. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was a good looking guy. He was smart. He was a warrior. This is the guy that everybody wants to follow. And so, God gave them this outward, from a human perspective, guy that should be a leader. But you know what? Saul's heart was not right. Saul didn't make it. And God removed him after 40 years because of his disobedience. And verse 22 says, After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. David didn't have the outward appearance of Saul. But he had a heart that God says was like his heart. He had a heart for God. 
He wanted to please God. He was quick to repent. He was a sinner. He was a depraved human being and a sinner just like all the rest of us. And he sinned greatly. And he faced just terrible consequences for his sin in his family and in in his nation. But he was quick to repent. He loved God and he wanted to please God and he was always quick to repent. That's why he was called a man after God's own heart because he wanted to glorify God in his life. And so, David was this king. Verse 23 says, From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So, after God removes Saul, he raises up David and he promises him that he's going to have a descendant whose father will be God. And this descendant is going to build a house for God to dwell in and rule over and this descendant is going to rule over God's people forever. Let me read you a passage from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the promise made to David. See, David got the idea after he had subdued all of Israel's enemies and everything's secure and the nation's prosperous, he gets this idea, you know, I've got this nice house that I live in. I need to build a house for God. I want to build a temple. Instead of using the tabernacle or a tent, let's build a temple and we'll put the Ark of the Covenant in it. We'll, we'll do the sacrifices there and all of that. Well, God says, no, we're not going to do that. And um, But God tells David, He makes him this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12. He says, when, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, David mistakenly thought that this promise concerned Solomon. But that's not who the promise was looking to. There's one that was promised. And that's what Paul's conclusion here, he says, from the descendants of this man, according to this promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And they're probably sitting there going, what? 
when he tells them that, he's, he's connecting, he's showing them how the history of the nation is all focused on one thing. There's one thing that Israel existed for. There's a reason why David became king. There's a reason for all of this, and every bit of it was geared toward bringing Jesus into this world. So, and you say, well, how do, you, how do I know that this is not talking about Solomon? Solomon did build a temple. This is true. He was a great king. But neither Solomon's throne nor his temple endured. And God promised David that this throne that is going to be built by this descendant is going to last forever. And he's going to rule over God's people forever. So, Paul is asserting that this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Do you remember Peter's revelation? I think it's in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? And they say, Well, this and that. And he says, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Upon this rock, this foundation of truth, I, Jesus, this descendant of David, will build my church, my temple, the dwelling place of God. And then at Pentecost, thousands of living stones are filled with the Spirit of God and built into a spiritual house. A dwelling place of God on earth. And the house just continues to grow as Jesus builds it. That's what Paul's talking about. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist came as the forerunner, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, and he's calling the people to repentance in the, the spirit and power of Elijah. So they're all looking forward to the coming of Messiah. They all believe that Elijah is coming first. And Paul is telling them, this is John. He's the one that is talking about in Malachi, the one, the messenger that's going to come. And he's going to make straight the way of the Lord. He's preparing the way of the Lord by pointing them, calling them to repentance and pointing them to that one who's coming after him. The Lord himself. Verse 26. He says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Brothers, we're all in this together. Whether you're of Abraham's family after the flesh, whether you're a Gentile who fears God, 
We are the privileged generation because the message of this salvation has been sent to us. It's the greatest message ever sent. And it's been sent to all of us. Verses 27 through 29. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, recognizing neither Him, Christ, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning Him. Though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. The Jews that were living in Jerusalem and their rulers crucified Jesus because even though the Word of God was read every Sabbath. They couldn't hear the voice of God speaking to them through the Word of God. They heard the words, but they didn't recognize the voice. They couldn't hear His voice. And they couldn't recognize Him when He was standing right in front of them. And Jesus told them that. In John chapter 10, he told them that. He said, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. When my words are proclaimed, my sheep hear my voice through my words. You know why Peter knew the right answer? Because he heard his voice. That's why he knew the right answer. He, he, at another time when Jesus said, well, you leave also, when he had said something really hard and a bunch of people left and he turned to his apostles, he said, well, you leave also? And Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right. You know why he knew that and none of the rest of them did? Because he heard his voice. Amen. The Holy Spirit took those words and applied them to his heart. That has to occur. And these rulers and these people in Jerusalem, they didn't hear His voice. But you know what? Wonder of wonders. Because they couldn't hear the voice of God speaking through the Word of God concerning who Jesus was and what would happen to Him, they fulfilled every single word of what was written concerning Him. And the reason was because they couldn't hear it. I think it was A.W. Pink that said it this way, God is not working out His purpose in this world in spite of the best efforts of men and devils, but by means of them. God is sovereign over all of it. Amen. Nothing can stop God's purpose. And even though it wasn't just in spite of the fact that they couldn't understand the Scriptures, or hear God's voice speaking to them through the Scriptures, it was because of that they fulfilled them perfectly just like God intended. Verses 30 and 31. 
Oh, uh, those two words again. But God. But God raised Him from the dead. And for many days He appeared to those who came up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now His witnesses to the people. This is the foundation of the Christian Gospel. There is no Gospel without this right here. Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. That's where our hope is at. And He appeared bodily to His followers. He ate fish so that they could see, I'm not a ghost. You're not hallucinating. He appeared to up to 500 people at one time according to 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans 1.4, Paul asserts that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Have you ever wondered what Paul bases that statement on? Is, is he just arbitrarily saying that if you rise from the dead, you must be the Son of God? I could see that, but that's not what he's doing. He's not just arbitrarily saying that. Let's move on. Verses 32 through 37. He says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore He also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among the fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. See, what, what Paul is doing is in these verses, he's connecting the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that all the families of the earth would be blessed in them to the promise that he made to David that he would have a descendant who would be the Son of God and would reign over God's people forever. And he quotes from Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16. And he asserts that all three of these promises are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we'll start with Psalm 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. But as for me, this is God speaking. He says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now we're switching. Now this is Jesus speaking. This is the Son speaking. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron 
You shall shatter them like earthenware, and therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. He's the king that's going to rule over God's people. But then you, and, and Paul is saying this is Jesus. Isaiah 55. Next. Is the next one that he quotes from. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. This Messianic King that the people are going to follow is the descendant promised to David. And He's the one who inaugurates the everlasting new covenant in His own blood, forever reconciling God and His people. That's what Paul is connecting here. And then finally, Psalm 16. That's the last one he quotes from. Psalm 16 and verse 10. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This one who gives himself as a ransom for God's people will not be abandoned to the grave. His body will not undergo corruption because he is God's holy one. Death can't hold him because he has no sin. He's the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the holy one. David wrote Psalm 16. David served God, but he died, he was buried, and he underwent decay. But his descendant Jesus, though he died, did not undergo decay. He was raised, as Paul says, proving that he was the Son of God with power. He's the one who was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that God is the Father too who would build a dwelling place for God and rule over His people forever. This is Paul's argument in his sermon. Verses 38 and 39. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So what's Paul's conclusion? Through Him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. See, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
But Jesus put them all away once and for all through the sacrifice of Himself. Through Him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed from what? All the things that the law of Moses couldn't free you from. In Romans 8, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What couldn't the law of Moses free anyone from? Sin and death. The law can tell you what God requires of you, but it can't free you from your bondage to sin and death. It has no power to do that. The Holy Spirit actually comes and lives inside of everyone who believes in Jesus and frees them from their bondage to fleshly desires that the law only has the power to condemn them for. Verses 40 and 41, he says, Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I'm accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So Paul wraps up the message with a quote from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what's going on there. Through the prophet Habakkuk, God is warning Judah. He's, he's actually telling them it's really too late. This, this judgment's already coming. But he's warning Judah that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans to punish their wickedness. This Chaldean army is going to come and is going to punish them. But he tells them in verse 5, you wouldn't believe what I'm doing even if someone were to tell you about it. You know what Paul's point is in quoting this? He's, he's saying, don't be like them. Don't be those who scoff and marvel and perish. Instead, be those who marvel and believe and live. That's, what he's, that's his call. That's the call of the Gospel. Don't be like those who scoff and marvel and perish. Be those who hear the voice of God speaking through His Word and showing you Christ. Marvel and believe and live. Verses 42 and 43 say, As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. 
Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes, converts, followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So as they're leaving, a lot of the people just get up and follow them out after the meeting, both Jews and Gentile converts. And you know, it just struck me reading that. Isn't that the way it is when you're hearing the words of eternal life? The message comes to an end and you think, is that it? Man, you just want it to keep going. So they spoke to them. Paul and Barnabas spoke to them. They encouraged them. And they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Keep looking to Christ. Keep looking to Jesus. This seed, this King, this One that's promised that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in Him. Keep entrusting yourself to the grace of God, the unmerited favor that God has given us in Jesus. So what's the conclusion of of what's going on here at Paul's message? God chose the patriarchs, the fathers. He made them into a great nation. But He did it for a reason. Not because they were special. He even tells them, it's not because you're special. It wasn't because you were greater than anybody else. He just chose them because He chose them. He set His love on them. Just like He does all of us when He draws us to Himself. And He chose them for a purpose which was to bring His Messiah King Jesus into the world that through them all of the families of the earth, including Israel, could be blessed in Him. That's Paul's message. So repent and look to Him. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your voice speaking to us through Your Word. And we just ask that You open our hearts and our minds and let us hear Your voice. Lift us up and give us grace to exalt You in our lives, to live for Your glory, to set us free, Lord, from all those things that we can't be freed from by law. That You, it has to be You. You are the Lord our righteousness and we just throw ourselves upon Your mercy and Your grace and ask that You help us to see more of You, to live for You and to proclaim You in our lives every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.